Welcome to The Final Word, a Bible teaching ministry with pastor, teacher, and author Jim Andrews. The Final Word is grounded on the invincible conviction that what the Bible teaches, God teaches. And that is the last word. On this program, truth still matters. The Bible is in, Babel is out. The Final Word is funded by listeners like you. Should you want to partner with us or want other information about the program, please go to our website at thefinalwordradio.com. There you'll find archives so you can listen to any program you may have missed. Visit us on our social media platforms at The Final Word Radio and write us a note. We love hearing from our listeners. We'll provide other contact information at the end of the program, so have your pen ready. And now Jim Andrews continues his current study of God's Word. Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining us again on The Final Word. Before I launch today's exposition, I want to make our listening audience aware of some articles that I have written. If you will go to jimandrewsbooks.com. That's one word, jimandrewsbooks.com. You will discover there some articles that I produced over the years that you may find interesting and helpful. I'm just happy to share them with you for whatever benefit they may have. We continue with our exposition of the book of Hebrews. We're in Hebrews chapter 7. We pick up officially with verse 4. If you missed our last program, you missed an important piece of introduction to all of this, but in a very brief way, Let me just emphasize the thrust of everything. Some of these Hebrew Christians had a wobble in their wheel of faith. Some of them were looking back, not to the world in a regular sense, but they were looking back to Judaism, back to their traditions. They'd gotten a little dull of hearing. They had regressed in their maturity. Things they should have understood, they didn't understand. And one of the things that they failed to grasp was the magnitude of the person and work of Jesus Christ. So our writer has been demonstrating since chapter 1 just how great Jesus Christ is. You do not want to turn away from his voice and turn away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've seen a couple of warning passages against apostasy to this point. He had made a statement in chapter 5 that Jesus Christ was our great high priest, And in verse 10 of chapter 5, he had said that he was designated by God as a high priest. Ah, not according to the order of Aaron. He couldn't be. He's from the tribe of Judah. But he's according to the order of Melchizedek. 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 The Jewish Christians were apt to think. Who is he? He's mentioned only one time back in Genesis 14. What's that? I don't get it. The writer goes on to say, I want to tell you about this, but... It's kind of hard to teach because you're dull of hearing. That causes him to digress and issue some warnings and encouragements. But now in chapter 7, he comes back to this, and he says, I know this is hard to get across to you, but with the help of the Spirit of God, I'm going to give it a shot and try to help you understand how in Jesus Christ, high priest after the order of Melchizedek, you have a greater high priest than you ever imagined in the sons of Aaron the earthly high priest. For this Melchizedek, you may remember, he says, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, he met Abraham when Abraham was turning from the slaughter of the kings, and he blessed Abraham. It was to Melchizedek that Abraham apportioned a tenth part of the spoils, a tithe. This Melchizedek was, first of all, by the translation of his name. Take note. Melchizedek 
means king of righteousness. You remember he was without father, without mother, without genealogy. Is any of that mentioned back there? No. He had neither days nor end of life, but he was made like the Son of God. He abides a priest perpetually. Jesus Christ, therefore, is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He is an ever-living priest, and he is in heaven and not on earth. And the sacrifice that he offers in behalf of our sins is not a ritual offering the blood of bulls and goats, but his own blood. Now the author goes ahead to press the point in chapter 7 to help them understand just the greatness of this Melchizedek, whom we take to be a theophany, an appearance of the pre-existent Christ back in the Old Testament. So our author goes on and says, Now observe how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest of spoils. Those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office, they have a commandment, that commandment, you know, is in the law. That commandment is to collect a tenth or a tithe from the people. That is, from their Jewish brethren. Although these brethren, from whom the priests of Aaron collect those tithes, they are descended from Abraham. But you will notice back in this Genesis 14 narrative, he is saying, the one whose genealogy is not traced from Aaron, this Melchizedek collected a tenth from Abraham, and Melchizedek blessed the one, Abraham, who had all the promises God had vouchsafed with him. Conclusion, without any dispute, we know the lesser is blessed by the greater. In this case, mortal men received tithes, the priests of Aaron. But in that case, one, Melchizedek, receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And so to speak... Through Aaron, even Levi, who was embedded in the loins of Abraham, received tithes and paid tithes. For he, Levi, from whom descend Aaron and all these priests, he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. What's he showing? That a priesthood after the order of Melchizedek is a far, far superior and greater thing than a priesthood after the order of Aaron, and they're wanting to retreat and go back to that. That would be retrograde, that would be stupid, that would be tragic. So let's look at the details. In order that his Hebrew readers might apprehend something of the greatness of the high priesthood of Melchizedek, to which the Son of God belongs, our writer takes us back to the Genesis narrative. There in Genesis 14, he talks concerning this obscure figure, Melchizedek, who came out to meet Abraham when Abraham returned from his triumph over the invading kings. Melchizedek blessed Abraham after the fact. And to Melchizedek, Abraham paid tithes. He paid tithes in honor of the Most High God whom Melchizedek represented. Now, what's he getting at here? He's trying to show that Melchizedek was a greater figure than Abraham, and therefore had to be a greater figure than Levi, because Levi was embedded in the loins of Abraham. To accentuate his stature, our author first of all calls attention to the significant meaning of Melchizedek's name. We see it in his official title, King of Salem, King of Peace. His very name means King of Righteousness. His title, King of Salem, means King of Peace. That's a name and that's a title that apply to Christ, the Son of God. 
So one has to confess that it's remarkable indeed that if such a merely mortal personage existed in the day of Abraham and those environs, it's so remarkable that sacred writ should have so little to report of such an exalted individual among Abraham's neighbors. The very mystery of his sudden appearance, I mean Melchizedek's, and the lack of any mention of his pedigree, his birth or death, well, all of that is suggestive of an encounter with a being of a higher order than Abraham. The writer is saying, are you listening? And that is precisely the point of verse 3, that the silence of the record about such matters suggests that Abraham, on that day when he returned from battle, encountered a priest whom Abraham, by the Spirit of God, intuitively recognized as a representative of the Most High God, and one made like the Son of God, that is, one who abides a priest perpetually, not temporarily. In verse 4, our author proceeds to strengthen his case. He shows that Melchizedek was a priest far superior to Levitical priests, the priest of the tribe of Levi, under the Old Covenant. He does this first by showing that Melchizedek was a person greater than their father Abraham. And that's a mouthful. Well, how is that? Because Abraham, as the Old Testament record shows clearly, Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God. And Abraham was blessed by Melchizedek. Well, it was a mutually accepted principle among them, see verse 7, that the lesser individual is blessed by the greater. He gets this across. Not only was Melchizedek greater than Abraham, the great patriarch of the Jewish nation, but Melchizedek was also greater than Abraham's descendants. And he has specifically in mind the priest of the line of Levi. For indeed, God appointed the tribe of Levi to receive tithes from the descendants of their father Abraham. Yet, the author underscores, Melchizedek received offerings from Father Abraham himself. So, it was no leap on their logic to extrapolate from those facts that Melchizedek is a personage of a higher spiritual order than all of them. For when Abraham paid his tithes to Melchizedek, both the author and his readers would agree without dispute that the lesser is blessed by the greater. We've said that. We repeat it. And on that logic, it is no stretch to infer that the priest Melchizedek, who received tithes from Abraham, when Abraham returned from his battle with the eastern kings, well, that Melchizedek is also a personage of greater magnitude than the priest of the Levitical order, that is, of the tribe of Levi and the family of Aaron. For in their case, mortal men, referring to the tribe of Levi, mortal men received tithes, from their fellow Israelites and the descendants of Abraham. But in the case of Melchizedek, ah, Melchizedek receives them tithes from Abraham, of whom it is witnessed in the Scriptures that Melchizedek lives on. That's not the case with the mortal priest of the tribe of Levi. In fact, in verse 9, the author adds, one might even say that through Abraham, even Levi, who was a descendant of Abraham, Levi, the priestly tribe, Levi received tithes from fellow Israelites, paid tithes himself to Melchizedek on that occasion. 
So, in verse 10, in one way of looking at it, Levi, the head of the high priestly tribe, Levi was seminally present on that occasion in the lines of Abraham. So the logic is, if it can be established that Melchizedek is someone of greater stature than Abraham, and it has been on the logic they would all assent to, then certainly Melchizedek is superior to all those mortal priests descended from Abraham, and seminally, that is in seed, present in him, when he paid honor to Melchizedek. Which brings us to verse 11. So far, our author has shown that there is, in case they have not caught up with the fact, there is another high priesthood, different from the Aaronic order of the tribe of Levi. It is not simply just a different one, just another, but it's a superior one, a perpetual high priesthood, exercised in heaven, meant to replace the other, the high priesthood of Aaron. So now, verse 11, following, he proceeds to show that had the Aaronic high priesthood, the one of Aaron, and its sacrifices, look, folks, if they have been sufficient to perfect, complete, and eternally secure our rights of standing with God, there would never have been a need for another priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. So his logic is, obviously, there was some inadequacy, there was some deficiency that necessitated a change when the old order had served its purpose. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of that priesthood people received the law, well, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek? Clearly, we've shown you that there was, and that Jesus Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, and that it's a never-living priesthood exercised in heaven, if there wasn't something wrong with the first one, something inadequate, there would have been no need for the second one. For when the priesthood is changed, the whole system is changed. Of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. So what's the force of the sidebar? Just this. Folks, there's no turning back to the Mosaic law. Do you understand? There's no turning back to its institutions and its ritualism. It all hangs together. The priesthood the Mosaic law and its institutions, its ritualism. For when there's a change of priesthood, and obviously, the writer says, I've shown you that there has been such a change, you can see that of necessity there's a change of the law also. I repeat, it all hangs together. You displace one and you displace the other. You can't go back. It should be clear by now that such a displacement has occurred. Which brings us to verse 13. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken, namely Christ, who is after the order of Melchizedek, it's clear that Christ belongs to another tribe. That's something not allowed under the terms of the Mosaic law. You could only have one priest. That's after the order of Aaron. That was the law. So clearly there's been a change. From Melchizedek, no one officiated at the altar under the old covenant cultus. So this confirms that God has altered the law governing who may and who may not mediate for his people before him. Verse 14, For it is evident, from the record he means, that our Lord, that is on the human side of his being, descended from the tribe of Judah. He didn't come from the tribe of Levi. Judah is a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning service as priest. 
So this represents an abrogation of the law regulating the priesthood. So our author's trying to get across, have you gotten it? Do you see it? Do you understand it? There's been a change. What you're wanting to go back to is obsolete. And he says in verse 15, it's clear still if, in fact, the scripture reveals that there is to be another priest arising according to the order of Melchizedek, whose title to the priestly office is not on the basis of the law, because that law prescribed a certain physical requirement, such as descent from Levi through Aaron. But Christ is designated as a priest on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. And that is precisely the case as the Scriptures plainly testify concerning Jesus. Verse 17, For it is witnessed of him, Christ, in the Psalms, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110, verse 4. So, the author continues, You can plainly see, my fellow Hebrew Christians, that God has abrogated the former legal requirement and the institutions and the rituals tangential to it. The Old Testament system of worship is now obsolete. So here the author summarizes two important changes in explanation of the new order. On the one hand, what we see is a setting aside of a former commandment, ritual commandment, one respecting the restriction of the priesthood to the tribe of Levi. That was all shadow, the substance of common Christ. It was set aside, he says, because of its weakness and uselessness. What he means by that is it was set aside because of its fundamental inadequacy in terms of bringing men and women into a perfected relationship with God. For, he adds by way of explanation of that statement about the weakness and uselessness of the law as a system, the law, he said, made nothing perfect. By perfect, he means that the religious system prescribed by the Old Testament law could not make atonement for sinful human beings. In short, the blood of bulls and goats was not able to atone for sin, only symbolically, and the priests who offered those sacrifices were themselves sinful mortal men who did not endure to make intercession for us. They all died one for one. So the legal system of Judaism, though revealed and handed down by God through Moses, that legal system could not effect our redemption and could not take away our sins. And you want to go back to that? So again, they might ask, what was it there for? And as the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans, to raise our consciousness of our sins to elevate our sense of a profound need of atonement and forgiveness. As I've said so many times, God accepted the faith of those in the Old Testament times who trusted in him and evinced that faith through responsiveness to his law. But it was not the blood of bulls and goats offered to God by their high priest that availed to take away their sins. What took away their sins was the application on credit, as it were, of the future atoning sacrifice offered by the one true high priest, Jesus Christ himself. Christ offered his own body for our sins. But that's beyond the purview of our author at the moment. Right now, he's simply making the point that the provisions of the law were inadequate to perfect, to justify the sinner, and to make the worshiper right or acceptable in the sight of God. 
Therefore, when the law had served its instructive purpose and its symbolic role, the law had to be displaced because its fundamental weakness and uselessness in accomplishing our salvation was all too apparent. The second great change the author highlights in verse 19. On the other hand, there is, now with the abrogation of the law or the old covenant, there is not a vacuum, but there is the bringing in of a better hope than was the case under the old legal system. Through this better hope we draw near to God, because now we have a perpetual high priest. We have a high priest who's entered into the very presence of God for us. And what you have in Christ, our author is saying, is a new covenant resting on a foundation far more secure than what you enjoyed under the old covenant under the law. And the priesthood of Christ after the order of Melchizedek is not one subject to alteration or elimination. Why? It was not without an oath of permanency sworn by God himself. In verse 21, God never said he would maintain forever the Levitical system. Take note of that. For they became priests without an oath. A significant point you should note, the author seems to say, he, namely Christ, became a priest after the order of Melchizedek with an oath, after all, through the one, God the Father, who said to him, the Lord has sworn, and he will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So in verse 22, he says, that's why you are miles ahead with Jesus because he's a perpetual priest in the very presence of God in heaven. He's offering up his own blood as an atonement for our sins. He represents the guarantee of a far better covenant, for the old priesthood with its ritual offerings could never secure our future. So in verse 23, he says, To illustrate the inadequacy of the old covenant to secure our redemption, the priest under that system existed in great numbers. They had to because of the simple fact they were prevented by death from continuing in their intercessory office. But with Christ, that's not the case. But he, verse 24, on the other hand, because he, Jesus, lives forever, holds his priesthood in perpetuity, he exercises his atoning and intercessory function permanently, that is, without interruption. In short, there's never a moment, despite our coming short of God's glory, there's never a moment in time when our heavenly mediator, is ever off-duty, ever out of service. There's never a time when the atoning sacrifice for our sins is ever wanting in heaven. Hence, he says in verse 25, He, Christ, our great high priest in heaven, after the order of Melchizedek, he's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives, he's not subject to death as the Levitical priests were. He always lives, he's always able to make intercession for us for us who approach the throne of God in his name and under his atoning blood. I should mention that intercession is used, let me use a word here, metonymically in this discussion. That means when one name is used for another. When the priests approached God with atoning blood, they were mediators for the people. They appealed to God for the forgiveness of their own sins, as well as for the sins of their people. So when Christ makes intercession, the thought is bound up with and includes the idea of offering to God an atoning sacrifice for our sins and asking his acceptance of it. So it's virtually the same as saying, Jesus ever lives to present himself to the Father as our all-sufficient atonement. So in the plan and purpose of God, such a high priest was just exactly what suited the requirements for our redemption. 
Well, our friends, our time has expired. We'll come back there, finish that up, and head into Chapter 8 in our next study. God bless you, and have a wonderful day. The final word is a listener-supported ministry. Should you want to partner with us or want other information about this program, please visit our website at thefinalwordradio.com. Our postal address is The Final Word, 4565 Carmen Drive, Lake Oswego, Oregon, 97035. Our email address is info at thefinalwordradio.com. Our phone number is 503-699-9840. If this program has ministered to you, tell a friend about it. We do solicit your prayers for God's hand upon this outreach. Be sure the word. Be sure the word. Just be sure the word gets in their hands.